morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten speaking to you from Ottawa, Canada. Um, longtime listeners of our show are aware that um, usually we take the Torah portion known in Hebrew as the Parashah, the weekly reading from the five books of Moses, um, and unpack it with a guest. This morning, we're going to do something a little bit different. We are going to continue to have a guest to help us understand some of the faith and facts of Judaism, but we're going to expand our conversation, Monica, which has begun. Um, I won't say more about that. It'll be part of our conversation. And then our guest, Rabbi Michael Zedek, um, Rabbi Emeritus of Emer Emmanuel Congregation in Chicago, uh, Rick and Rabinet, served as Senior Rabbi of B'nai Yehuda in Kansas City, Missouri, and CEO of the Jewish Federation of Cincinnati before he moved to Emmanuel Congregation, one of the uh, hallmark congregations of the city of Chicago there in 2004, and served um, for more than 15 years, I guess more than um, 15 years as senior rabbi and is now Rabbi Emeritus. Um, rabbi Zedek, um, an old friend of mine from uh, seminary, has written a book entitled Taking Miracles Seriously, A Journey to Everyday Spirituality. And Rabbi Zedek and I are going to chat about this wonderful book, which seems to fit perfectly for this season, where both the Jewish community and the Christian community um, imbibe and internalize stories of miracles as part of their faith. So, Rabbi Zedek, uh, welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. Oh, well, first of all, thank you. Uh, of all the introductions I've ever received, that's the most recent. <laughs> And it's great to see you, even though we're on radio, and both of us have faces that are designed for radio, no doubt. Uh, but uh, it's absolutely wonderful to renew uh, a connection face-to-face, panim-el panim, even at this uh, dark time uh, in terms of the seasons of the year in the Northern Hemisphere, and a dark time in terms of uh, our world. However, Hanukkah suggests that darkness does not have the final word. In fact, uh, I know you're aware of the, the debate that the Talmud records between Beit Hill and Beit Shammai, that school of Hillel and the school of Shammai, uh, to wit, how, do was, how does one light the Hanukkah, the Hanukkah menorah? Is it in honor of, quote-unquote, the miracle, and I put quotes around the miracle, of enough oil for one day lasting for eight, therefore eight plus one, nine, seven plus one, six plus one, because there'll be less and less oil, or as Beit Hillel, the way we do it, one plus one, two plus one throughout the rest of the holiday, so that at the, the conclusion, the, the Hanukkah, the Hanukkah menorah is ablaze with light. And and the, and they all and they added to their conversation of whether you can ever decrease uh, joy by suggesting that if you were to light all of the candles at once, you would be decreasing the amount of light during the winter season, um, and therefore let us add to our joy in the winter season. You got a deal. By the way, as, for those who are uh, astronomy-minded, uh, one of the things that Hanukkah always means, giving, beginning that it begins in the Hebrew month, the 25th of Kislev, and I suspect it's no accident, that Kislev 25 and 
December 25 may have some context that <laughs> parallel. And, and of course, lights are essential to both holidays. Well, if I were a Christian, which I'm not, what greater time for the world's greatest light to enter, but at a moment of great darkness. So to the point, it always means that we will have a waning moon leading to in the middle of the holiday, no moon, darkness at night, to a waxing moon. There's increasing light, and certainly both true in terms of the equinox experience of the Northern Hemisphere, and God willing, it's true of our lives, that there's more and more light no matter the circumstances. Where can our world use a surplus of that nowadays? So certainly, as you suggested, um, this year, the notion of darkness seems to be prevalent throughout the world. There's too much of it, that's for sure. Right. and. And the place that we um, ascribe both uh, stories, the story of the birth of Jesus and the story of the uh, Maccabees and uh, their successful uh, military campaign to reestablish the synagogue as the central focus of Israelite religion, both take place in the Holy Land, which is, of course, as you alluded to and as our listeners know, just a place of extreme darkness. That, that, alas, is the case, and I wouldn't object in the slightest if there were a breakthrough that led to uh, more light, more peace, more wholeness. By the way, Chag, the Jewish word for holiday, and Hajj, the Arabic word for making the pilgrimage to Mecca, they're cognate words, and maybe cognates can live together. In fact, may I to, to, uh, a story and a story, okay? Good. So, so the first story is, uh, I, I'm paraphrasing a, a wonderful Orthodox colleague of ours uh, who said, you know, the miracle of the enough oil for, for one day lasting eight was so modest that it wasn't noticed for 400 years. Because as you know, the Talmud, and I'm going to get in trouble now, invents this miracle. Because in the books of Maccabees, they call it Sukkot Shel Kislev, Eight days because Sukkot, the festival that I think we call it in English, uh, booze, right? Right. Uh, is eight days in the Hebrew Bible. And since the, t- the temple was in pagan hands, they couldn't celebrate what was then the most important holiday. So they finally cleaned out the temple and they celebrated the Sukkot Shel Kislev. So I-, I want to not interrupt the story, but rather to just clarify for our listeners the story of Hanukkah as we know of it, comes to us from two books called the Books of Maccabees. Maccabee 1 seems to spend an inordinate amount of time on the military campaign, and Maccabee 2 seems to focus on the rededication of the temple. And what Rabbi Zedek said about the original story comes from the Book of Maccabees, but when the Hebrew scriptures known as Tanakh the books of Torah, prophets, and writings were canonized, the books of Maccabees were excluded, and they become part of what's known as the Apocrypha. In the Christian canon, Apocrypha is included in the canon, but in the Hebrew canon, it is a separate collection of books. Therefore, as the rabbi has suggested a number of times, what we know from Hanukkah emerges the celebration that we have today emerges not from the books of Maccabees, but from the later ra- writings of the rabbis, 
the writings that we call the Talmud, which were codified uh, by the end of the sixth century. Um, and there, there is a long discussion, meaning four lines, in which the rabbis speak about my Hanukkah. What is Hanukkah? And they tell the miracle story that Rabbi Sedek uh, shared with us. And there's then that question about um, lighting eight candles at once and decreasing or lighting one candle for each night. For those of you who are unfamiliar with the history of Hanukkah, I suggest that given we all have access to the internet, rather than my conversation with Rabbi Zedek focus on that history, I welcome you and encourage you to look up what Wikipedia or uh, Jewish learning sites will tell you about the story of Judah Maccabee and the Greek Syrians. Um, and there, um, Rabbi, tell us the second story. Okay. So the second story is what I would consider a, a miracle deeply in need for our world. It's based on uh, an encounter between Golda Meir and Anwar Sadat. And Sadat in 1977 made his breakthrough journey to Jerusalem at Ben Gurion Airport when he landed. There were dignitaries, and among them was Golda Meir, who was at that point very near the end of her life. She was dying of breast cancer. And she supposedly said to him, why did you decide to come? He said to her, I decided to love my children more than I hated yours. May that be a miracle that we embrace and increase over and over until the surplus overwhelms us all. By the way, just a small footnote, because I, I agree. You can learn all you want about Hanukkah, not just in a department store, but even on the <laughs> internet. Uh, and for Catholics, the books of Maccabees are part of the canon, but for Protestants, they're not, which is also interesting in and of itself as well. That is interesting. I wasn't aware of that distinction. Thank you. It, it matters to them. It does matter to them. And... The truth is that so many of the people associated with the Jewish tradition don't even know that the Book of Maccabees exists because it's not part of the canon. Exactly. That's for the Montreal You told us that wonderful story about Sadat and Golda Meir, in which there is the illusion of a miracle right. that I love more than I hate. And that's a great segue to this uh, wonderful piece of writing that you've produced. Um, Rabbi Zedek has created a book, as I suggested in my introduction, Taking Miracles Seriously, A Journey of Everyday Spirituality. Um, so let's begin with, why did you write this book? <laughs> well, it grew out of a lecture I've been giving for a number of years at a spirituality retreat center in Mexico. So we've got all of North America covered today. I'm in, right. in greater Kansas City and Missouri. You're in Ottawa and talking about Baja, California. And uh, my original title was Miracles of the Ordinary, A Journey to Everyday Spirituality. And it was based on the notion that in the Hebrew Bible, every time what you or I would call a miracle occurs, no one draws what we would consider to be the obvious lesson to which everything's okay, we got God playing for our team right? Uh, they just constantly miss it. Martin Luther King's understanding was, was that these stories demonstrate it's easier to get the slaves out of Egypt than to get Egypt out of the slaves. My book's focus is another matter, namely that people are free to disbelieve the evidence of their own experience. I know that's true about me, and the book makes a leap to presume others share that same blind spot. Can you expand on what that means? Sure. They, well, 
to quote Rabbi Chaim Stern of Blessed Memory, days pass, years vanish, and we walk sightless among miracles. Or as Einstein put it, there are two ways to live. One is though nothing is a miracle. The other is though everything is a miracle. And the book's effort is to try to get us closer to the second position. Because I don't think anyone can live in that intensity all the time and get through a day formally, because all of us are duels. We We divide the world into ordinary and extraordinary. And what we do with the extraordinary is self-evident, needs no elaboration. We pay attention. What we do with the ordinary is equally clear. We take it for granted. Are there ways to take the ordinary for granted less? Because if there were, or if we embrace them, our lives would be more filled with life. Um, And so you're changing the normatively held definition of miracle, which is something extraordinary and outside of our experience to call that which we live with around us every day has the potential to be seen with a different set of eyeglasses or a different prescription as something significant. A hundred percent. Thank you for getting the the book already. (laughs) But uh, let me put it this way. Uh, If we were to ask, if this were a call-in show, and we asked somebody to call in and say, give me a definition of a miracle, I have no doubt that the word supernatural would get into the conversation. Intriguingly, biblical Hebrew has no such notion of what a miracle is. The three principal words, as you know, are nes, which means a sign or a symbol, ot, which literally means a letter of the alphabet, a symbol, or pele, which is my favorite, a wow or a wonder. And what I'm arguing is, taken seriously, what isn't at least potentially a wow or a wonder? And that happens to be well, certainly Judaism's expertise, because nobody needs skill or training to say, oh, something extraordinary has happened. We know. But to understand that embedded in the everyday commonplace routine is a burning bush as well. You know, you know the book refers to a lot of poetry, so let, let me uh, pontificate with a poem. Earth's crammed with heaven, and every bush is a fire with God. But only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit round and pluck blackberries. And my point is, when it's just a blackberry bush, if our eyes are open, it's a burning bush. Or as there are burning bushes scattered randomly through every day. And sure. we, maybe we can ignore fewer of them. Uh, that's the idea. So it is a book which um, wonderfully attempts to help the reader um, see the world in a new light. Um, It's not something that's unique. Others have written about it. But why do you think your book will open the eyes of um, the reader in ways that other books haven't? You quoted um, Einstein, who said basically the same thing. And in the book, you quote uh, St. Augustine, and you wonderfully um, expand beyond the Jewish tradition, which you have great expertise in um, and great learning in to include other traditions, uh, native aboriginal traditions. Um, there's even a wonderful quote from Groucho Marx. I mean, this is a book, um, this is a book that attempts to um, help the reader see that it's not just formal religious training. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, thank you. I, I think you're absolutely right. The, 
as Ecclesiastes, nothing new under the sun. But there is also in our tradition when the student is ready, the teacher may emerge and maybe the, and I certainly wrote this book for me. That is to say, I need to remember this. I need to hold fast to it because uh, one of the quotes in the book, because it is filled with a lot of literary references, poetry, etc., cetera, uh, is Henry James, be among those upon whom nothing is lost. And, I, and as I argue in the book, that's part of the problem. We're all or nothingness. But can we be among those upon whom less is lost? That's a message to me. And I have no doubt that that is something that can inform any and every person, whether they buy the book or not. I hope they will. But whether they buy it or not, um, it seems to me that we cannot ever learn this lesson enough that the dualism gets in our way of the fullest embrace of life. Was there one particular story that became um, an imperative for you that motivated you to write this book or to teach the initial lessons in Baja, California? You know, because each of us resonates with a story in our life. Um, sometimes it changes. You know that my primary metaphor is sports um, <laughs> and that I see the world through the eyes of a baseball diamond or a golf course. But um, even then, there are certainly miracles that we speak about. But was there one story or one aphorism? We call them Hail Marys. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> um, um, is there one that yeah. stood out for you? Well, I'm going to answer the question with a yes, even though I'm not sure. Okay. And, and what comes to mind, and I, I do describe this a bit in the book, is I was paying what is all too casually called a sympathy call. And uh, as I was leaving, I noticed on the coffee table that the folks had a, book, had a magazine out with, which had a woman, and I'm being polite here, who was very scantily clad. Uh, I would admit to you, it's a family. It's a family station, so you can say it that way. Well, that's how I said it. Uh, in fact, I would, if I had known the rabbi were coming to visit, I think I would have put the magazine away. But she was very well endowed and scantily clad, and a, a banner headline above her was Isaac Asimov. Do do scientists believe in God? And I'm an, I was an Isaac Asimov fan. So you had the darn magazine out. Do you mind if I took a look at the article? He said, of course not. So, in essence, what he says is the Bible says creation took six days. Anyone who's got a serious mind knows that's ridiculous. So, anyone who takes the Bible seriously is equally ridiculous. Now, I take the Bible seriously, and I don't think the world was created in six days. So, I thought about writing a letter to the editor. And then I thought, wait a second. It would appear in this magazine, which would do more damage to me than it would do enlightenment to the issue. But then again, who would ever say they read the letter? Because that would meant they that would have meant they got the magazine. But Part of the passion of my rabbinate is how do we take this remarkable library of books that we call the Hebrew Bible and suggest that it still has deep meaning? Did you have Bricto for Bible at all? I did. Okay. Well, Hanan, who Bricto, who, our Bible teacher, was not an easy teacher. He was a tough as nails guy. But one so, the, just to uh, for the listeners, Rabbi Zedek and I went to the same seminary, um, Hebrew Union College, Jewish Institute of Religion. Um, he has already celebrated his fiftieth anniversary in the rabbi, 
Oh, this year. This year is 50 years in the rabbinate. Um, in Yetzer Hashem. I look much younger, though, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> he looks much younger. Um, and um, the professor that he's referring to, Hanan Brichto, was the preeminent Bible scholar at that seminary. Exactly. And everybody um, was uh, invited um, without exception, to take at least two full-year courses of introduction to the Hebrew uh, scriptures, um, the Torah particularly, but it extended beyond that. And he was, as uh, Rabbi Zedek suggested, not an easy person to learn from. Or as he used, as I observed, he did not suffer fools gladly, and he thought just about everybody was a fool. Except however, him. However, one of his great lines was, is the Hebrew Bible a religious text of Western civilization because it is a great book, or is it a great book because it's a religious text of Western civilization? And obviously, our lives is dedicated to the former, and your show with its exploration of parashiot is similarly. Uh, but that takes unpacking that all too often we're lazily nonchalant in dismissing, right? We're talking about a library of great books. So, for example, one of the catch minefields in the Hebrew Bible is all those miracles and every single time, the only thing they do is end up complaining, you know? Uh, and every single time there's a miracle in the Hebrew Bible, there's a, a, a telltale, a watch out, something funny's going on. Uh, for instance, the sea split and they walk through on dry ground. There should be mud. Even more important, if you're an Egyptian chariot driver, you're going to drive in there. Got to be crazy. But the text says they do. And then the text says, is, is the Israelites beheld Mitzrayim, which is Egypt, not Egyptians, that on the shores of the sea, again, a clue. And they had emunah in God and in Moses, God's servant. Emunah is usually mistranslated as faith. It means confidence. That, but the confidence didn't last until the next chapter. We got no water. They get water. Everything's fine. We got no food. They get manna. They're sick and tired of manna. They get meat. They get to Mount Sinai. And in the most remarkable revelatory experience in any religious literature, God speaks to the entire community and they build a golden calf. They are either the dumbest people to ever walk the face of the earth, or there's a great deal more going on here than meets the eye. The book is an effort to be an exploration, not the, an exploration of, of where that leads us. And I suppose that could be uh, the subtitle to your book. Your book is not the explanation. It is um, helping us on a journey um, to explain what would be impactful to our lives beyond the formal structure of religion, before, beyond the formal structure of liturgy, bef beyond the formality of faith, what would impact our lives in a more complete way than the Israelites were impacted as they walked through the desert? Because they seem to be so... Um, focused on these extraordinary events that the moment the event was over, they returned to a life shuttered um, by blinders that racehorses wear. Well, you, you know, the Lily Tomlin line, sometimes I think people invented language out of a deep-seated need to complain. We don't need her. The Bible's filled with it. Just absolutely <laughs> filled with it. Uh, but, you know, I, I, as the... At the moment, I'm enjoying a wonderful experience being the quote-unquote rabbi in residence at a Christian seminary. 
And one of the things that I, I think they find absolutely stunning is the metaphor that's associated with the acronym PARDACE, which you and I know is the minimum of the four levels on which every text in Jewish tradition has an, a meaning, a key to understanding. Pardes is the Hebrew word for orchard, which for a desert people is no small thing for them to suggest about the, the fecundity of these texts. And we get the English word paradise from it. It's a cognate, pardes, par, paradise. Uh, I love, I'm intoxicated with the text. I mean, you know, and not because it's just exciting, but because these stories aren't just something that happened a long time ago. They happen in us. It's an existential journey. And the other thing that I think is quite clear is it's far more a perspective on human anthropology than it is about divine theology. Um, it's about us, all of us, not just the Jewish people. And I suppose that um, wonderful um, formulation explains why you're comfortable writing a book that is not exclusive to the Jewish faith. Well, uh, that there's wisdom beyond the Torah. You're, you're not kidding. I mean, that's, that's vitally important. In fact, one of the things I argue in, in the book is that religions are languages to the sacred. To worship one's religion as having a monopoly on the truth is to engage in one of the most traditionally biblical sin stuff, idolatry. It'd be the equivalent of saying English is better than French. They're languages to communicate. Some things might be more eloquently expressed in one language than another, or we learn a different language, and that's a notion of what we, what we might call conversion. Well, but that's also opening our eyes when you can read the original Hebrew mm -hmm. and compare it to the Greek and then compare it to the English. All of a sudden, all three um, reflect the translator and the writer, not the text itself. By the way, that's one of the reasons why I think it's even our, even in Judaism, those people we would call fundamentalists are not literalists because they know that to interpret a text in only one way is to miss the meanings in it. Inherent in the text itself. Exactly. My guest th this morning has been Rabbi Michael Zedek, Rabbi Emeritus of Emmanuel Congregation in Chicago, and he has written The Perfect Hanukkah or Christmas Gift, oh! uh, a book entitled... Say it again! Say it again! <laughs> Taking Miracles Seriously, A Journey to Everyday Spirituality, which can be found wherever you get your books online or even in bookstores. Um, I want to thank him for joining me and allowing us to renew our 50-year acquaintanceship. Um, you can find a recording on CHRI 99.1 FM or a podcast on, on CHRI.ca or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. For Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten wishing you, regardless of what you celebrate at this time of year, a happy and joyous and light-filled uh, winter. Shalom and have a good day.